0: hello welcome to science factual prepare yourself for factual download sequence commencing is there anybody out there there? i'm ready to end the experiment now you can let me out of the tank please welcome to science factual season two i'm your host reese hendrick and i am freaking out man because we're going to be kicking off this season with a head trip into one of my favorite films altered states with one of my favorite people comedian michael garcia I had a great time doing the Season 1 recap show with the first five and top five most listened to guests from Season 1, so if you're looking to learn about the facts behind your favorite science fiction with the funniest people Portland has to offer, definitely check out the recap show, episodes from the first season, as well as the awesome topics and guests we have in store for Season 2. Speaking of which, I'd like to take the time to thank you, the listener, for your continued support. Regardless of how much I like hearing myself talk, it would be just me and my pup Levi listening if it wasn't for you. So, my thanks go out to each and every one of you as well as the folks over at Shady Pines Radio. You can support Science Factual by supporting them with a contribution to their Patreon page. It's at this point in the experiment that I'm legally and morally obligated to inform you that we've just injected you with a heavy dose of... Spoiler alert! Spoiler alert! Try not to think negative thoughts and everything will be just fine. Just fine. If you haven't seen Altered States, that's understandable. It's a bit of a niche film and doesn't really come to the forefront of the mind when talking about movies from the year 1980, like The Shining or The Empire Strikes Back or Airplane. But this film deserves every bit as much of respect and admiration for the subgenre that it fills, which is sci-fi psychodrama, fueled by psychedelic mushrooms, of course. Alrighty, folks, I've got my trip diaper on, so let's get right into it. And yes, I did just say trip diaper. That's a little trick I picked up from Shoko Asahara, leader of the Aum Shinrikyo death cult, who used to take so much LSD with his followers, everyone had to wear diapers during their trips because although their brains were accessing a different plane of reality, their bladders were definitely still very much a part of this reality. And their poops. Altered States is a 1980 American science fiction body horror film directed by Ken Russell and based on the novel of the same name by playwright and screenwriter Patty Chayefsky. It also marked the film debuts of William Hurt and Drew Barrymore. The film was adapted from Chayefsky's 1978 novel and his final screenplay, and the novel and the film are based in part on John C. Lilly's sensory deprivation research conducted in isolation tanks under the influence of psychoactive drugs like mescaline, ketamine, and LSD. Chayefsky eventually withdrew from the project after disputes with Russell and took his name off the credits, substituting Sidney Aaron, his actual first and middle names, instead. The film score was composed by John Carigliano with Christopher Keane conducting, and the film itself was nominated for Academy Awards in Best Original Score and Best Sound. Okay, here's a quick synopsis of the events of the film in case it's been a while since you've seen this classic, or the last time you saw it, your buddy suggested watching it right as you started peeking on some tasty Cubenzies. Edward Jessup, a Columbia University psychopathologist, is studying schizophrenia and begins to think that, quote, our other states of consciousness are as real as our working states. He begins experimenting with sensory deprivation using a flotation tank aided by two like-minded researchers, Arthur Rosenberg and Mason Parrish, although Mason has his reservations, I would say. At a faculty party, he meets fellow Wizkid and his future wife, Emily. Seven years later, Edward and Emily have two daughters, are on the brink of divorce, and reunite with the couple who first introduced them. When Edward hears of the Hinchy tribe, whose members experience shared hallucinatory states, he travels to Mexico to participate in their ceremonies. During the climb up into the Hinchy Hill Country, a plateau covered in spectacular mushroom-shaped ventifacts... Edward is told by his guide Eduardo Echeveria that the Hinchy use in their ceremonies a potion containing the sacred mushroom Amanita muscaria and the shrub Sinequiche, otherwise known as Hemia salicyphalia, which they are collecting for next year's ceremonies. Probably definitely butchering that scientific name, but it is reminiscent of how ayahuasca is made out of two different plants. The tribe calls Hemia salicyphalia by a Hinchy name meaning the first or primordial flower in recognition of the deep memory states which it can evoke. An indigenous elder, the Bruillo, is seen with a root in his hand, which he asks Edward to hold before cutting him in order to add some drops of blood to the mixture he is preparing. Immediately after consuming the mixture, Edward experiences bizarre, intense hallucinations, including one of the petrification and subsequent erosion by blown sand of Emily and himself. The following morning, Edward leaves the Hinchy Plateau under a cloud having killed, while in his intoxicated state, a large specimen of the Hinchy's sacred monitor lizard, which a petroglyph shown in the dream sequence shows that they believe the lizard to have given them the sacred mushroom in the mythic past. He returns to the United States with a sample of the Hinchy potion for analysis by his colleagues and further self-experimentation, and continues taking it in order to take his exploration of altered states of consciousness to a new and higher level. When toxic concentrations of the substance make increased dosage dangerous, Edward returns to sensory deprivation, believing it will enhance the effects of the substance at its current dose. Repairing a disused tank in the medical school, Edward uses it to experience a series of increasingly drastic visions, including one of early hominidae. Monitored by his colleagues, Edward insists that his visions have externalized. Emerging from the tank, his mouth bloody, frantically writing notes because he's unable to speak, Edward insists on being x-rayed before he, quote, reconstitutes. A radiologist inspecting the x-rays says that they belong to a gorilla. In later experiments, Edward experiences actual physical biological devolution. At one stage, he emerges from the isolation tank as a feral and curiously small-statured, hair-covered early hominid, going on a rampage through the streets and breaking into a zoo, killing a sheep before returning to his natural form. Despite his colleagues' concern, Edward stubbornly continues forward, and in the final experiment, Edward experiences a more profound regression, transforming into an amorphous mass of conscious, primordial matter. Say that five times fast. An energy wave released from the experiment stuns Edward's colleagues and destroys his tank. Emily arrives to find a swirling maelstrom where the tank had been, and she searches into the vortex for Edward, finding him as he is on the brink of becoming a non-physical form of proto-consciousness and possibly disappearing from our version of reality altogether. After this, his friends bring Edward home, hoping that the transformations will end. Watched over by Emily, Edward begins to uncontrollably regress again, the transformations no longer requiring the intake of first flower or sentry deprivation urging edward to fight the change emily grabs his hand immediately being enveloped by the primordial energy emanating from edward the sight of emily apparently being consumed by the energy stirs the human consciousness in edward's devolving form he fights the transformation returning to his human form as the film ends edward embraces emily as she also returns to normal Now, this film relies heavily upon the imagery associated with events and themes throughout, so definitely make sure to watch without distractions. You're going to want to make sure you just saw what you, in fact, just saw in order to attempt to make sense of what your eyeballs are telling your brain. All right, getting into the cast before moving on to some facts, we have William Hurt as Dr. Eddie Jessup in his breakout film role, although he had a background in musical theater at that point to rely on. We also have Blair Brown as Emily Jessup, who did her first on-camera nude work, for which a 17-year-old Reese was very thankful. We have Bob Balban as Arthur Rosenberg, Charles Hayde as Mason Parrish, Thago Pangilis as Eduardo Echeverria, and Drew Barrymore as Margaret Jessup. Now, most people think of E.T. as Drew Barrymore's first movie, but this bit part has the honor of being her first on-screen appearance. Speaking of interesting tidbits, how's about a microdose of factoids behind the film before we trip on into the interview with Michael? The film's title refers to altered states of consciousness, which can be called altered states of awareness or altered states of mind. This is any state which is significantly medically different from a normal waking state, i.e. a normal waking beta wave state. The term was first used around 1966 by Arnold M. Ludwig and entered the popular lexicon around 1969 when Charles Tart used it to describe inducing changes in a person's mental state. At one point in the film, Eddie Jessup mentions the work of Tart, Ornstein, and Diekmann. This is a reference to Charles Tart, Robert Ornstein, and Arthur Deikman, all of whom wrote books about altered states of consciousness and all of whom have been involved in modern esoteric spiritual movements such as the Gurdjieff work. An altered state of consciousness is defined as a state in which the neurocognitive background mechanisms of consciousness have an increased tendency to produce misrepresentations, such as hallucinations, delusions, and memory distortions. Those, quote, misrepresentations can be brought on by internal or external stimuli and influences, such as hallucinogenic drugs or chemical imbalances in the brain. The five altered states of consciousness are pharmacological, which includes short-term changes in the general configuration of one's individual experience caused by psychoactive substances such as LSD, MDMA, cannabis, cocaine, opioids, or even alcohol. Many of these substances alter the state of consciousness by shifting levels of neurotransmitters in the brain, causing changes in awareness and behavior. We also have psychological, as in hypnosis, meditation, and even music, which can lead to altered mental states, For instance, hypnosis can lead to reduced peripheral awareness as well as an enhanced capacity to respond to suggestion, and music therapy can enhance relaxation and decrease anxiety. Meditation can be hard to define, but it is used in many religions and spiritual practices to achieve a clear and calm mental state. Then we have physical and physiological altered states. One of the most common ways to achieve an altered state of consciousness is to sleep, where we dream and disassociate from reality. Two others are fasting and sex. Deprivation from food and drinks over an extended period of time can lead to a perceived disassociation from reality. Other physical and physiological inductive methods include sleep deprivation and oxygen deprivation. Up next, we have pathological altered states. Uh, For instance, a traumatic experience causing brain damage can lead to an altered state of consciousness. According to Dr. Jeffrey Avner, patients report either a reduced self-awareness and overall awareness or an increased awareness of the environment. Other pathological sources of altered states of consciousness include epileptic or psychotic episodes. Last but not least, we have spontaneous altered states such as daydreaming and mind-wandering. Or when people report NDEs or near-death experiences, which I personally find fascinating due to the consistencies in reporting of those experiences. For more on that topic, definitely check out the well-written article on nestlabs.com by author Anne-Laurie Lecomf that dives into altered states of consciousness. Getting into the movie background, um, author Paddy Chayefsky disowned this movie. Even though the dialogue in the screenplay was almost verbatim from his novel, he reportedly objected to the general tone of the film and the shouting of his precious words by the actors, this conflicting with Ken Russell's typical style of wanting heightened performances. Paddy Chayefsky had not yet seen the film before he took his name off the credits, the script being credited to Sidney Aaron, as previously mentioned, a pseudonym for Chayefsky, the two names being his real first and middle names. Director Ken Russell and Chayefsky fought constantly during the production, Russell maintaining that almost nothing was changed from Chayefsky's script and stating that he was, quote, impossible to please. Russell hated Paddy Chayefsky's script so much that he openly called it ponderous, pretentious, and labored. However, he was in a situation where if he changed so much as one word of the script, he would have been sued. He resolved this by having the actors mumble their lines or give speeches in between mouthfuls of food or wine. It's probably the fact that he was 27th in line chosen to direct, mainly because the twenty six before him passed up the gig, combined with his troubles on set that drove him to be hammered most of the time. Out of the 26 options before Ken Russell, Arthur Penn was originally slated to direct the film but resigned. Then special effects whiz John Dijkstra also resigned from the film, but when he did, Bran Farron had to do the special effects on a lower budget. But he still fucking nailed it though. Even used a primitive form of CGI for some scenes. Pretty rad. The film was released about two years after its source novel by Chayefsky first published in 1978. The book was a bestseller and was Chayefsky's only novel. The story was the second medically related screenplay he had done in recent time, having recently won an Oscar for The Hospital in 1971. He spent two years in Boston doing research for the novel and had a lot of stress during this, subsequently suffering from a heart attack in 1977. Moreover, according to the guide of the Paddy Chayefsky papers, Chayefsky was sued by one of the people assisting him with the research. He died just over six months after the movie first launched at the end of 1980, and it was the final film that was written by the author. Looking at the inspiration behind the movie, Chayefsky was intrigued by the work of neuroscientist and dolphin researcher John C. Lilly, who invented the isolation tank and first started taking drugs while, quote, tanking. Lilly's work had inspired Mike Nichols' earlier dolphin movie, The Day of the Dolphin, in 1973, and Lilly was an uncredited scientific researcher on both pictures. Alright, let's take a quick aside into this guy John C. Lilly. Holy fuck did this guy do some living. Lilly's primary scientific pursuit was the study of dolphins, with a view to understanding how they communicate and, if possible, establishing a dialogue between their species and our own lofty ambitions which still haven't been fulfilled though great strides have been made since his death in 2001 now undoubtedly you're already aware of his experiment in which a female assistant of his lived in a specifically built house filled waist high with salt water so humans and dolphins could comfortably live in the same space over long periods we all know this margaret howe lovett the assistant shared this dwelling with a dolphin named Peter, who she had to relieve from time to time so Peter could focus on the experiments at hand and not his own raging dolphin boners. By the way, the experiments at hand were just a dolphin getting injected with massive amounts of LSD. LSD. The real story on Lily is his work involving sensory deprivation tanks. Cutting edge in the 60s when he began tinkering with them, their purpose, of course, is to insulate you against all stimuli. You float in a pool of Epsom salt-saturated water so that your body floats without effort at body temperature, enclosed in a sound and light-proof chamber. Lily was convinced of the scientific merit of these tanks and experimented with a wide variety of designs. Predictably, before long, he merged this interest with his dolphin obsession, spending countless hours floating in silent darkness alongside a very confused dolphin. Numerous trips on LSD, mushrooms, and ketamine convinced him that psychedelic substances had a power to deprovincialize consciousness, to render it generic rather than specifically human or cetacean compatible with any other consciousness in the same state by means of telepathy. Now, anyone who's done acid enough times know that there are moments of eerie synchronicity during which it feels very convincingly as if you can read the thoughts of the people tripping with you. However, convincing the effect... It doesn't hold up to testing under laboratory conditions, but it was a sufficiently tantalizing mirage that Lilly spent much of his career chasing after. I'd like to give a thanks to Alex Bayman over at Medium.com for that interesting read. Definitely check out the rest of that article for some more insights into John C. Lilly's background. Basically, it's a bunch of psychedelics and dolphin cop. Speaking of isolation tanks, in a 1981 interview with the New York Times, Blair Brown said that many of the actors and crew tried out the isolation tank. William Hurt actually hallucinated, while Brown found it very peaceful. I guess the old adage is true. The best way to depict something on screen is to have experienced it firsthand. The film's themes and meanings have often been debated, with many interpretations being put forward such that it's the Orpheus and Eurydice myth, that it's the Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde yarn, or that it's really the story of Mary and Jesus. The film's writer, Patty Chayefsky, however, once revealed in an interview that it was actually really a love story— which I totally agree with given the third act of the film largely delving into that theme. However, there are undeniable religious themes and allegory peppered throughout the film, which, by the way, was released on Christmas Day, 1980. Oh, and the scenes of hell depicted during Jessup's various hallucinations are from the 1935 film version of Dante's Inferno directed by Harry Lockman, based on the classic poem Inferno by Dante Alighieri, which is part of the Divine Comedy written in the 14th century which is metal as fuck and has inspired some superb art over the years. Alrighty folks, that dose you took at the top of the episode should be nipping at the heels of your conscious mind by now, so why don't we take a trip to the interview dimension with guest Michael Garcia? Now, that name should sound familiar if you listen to the episodes during Spooky Month, as Michael puts on the Dark Arts Festival, where Science Factual did a live taping for Season 1, Episode 50 with Billy Chambers on Event Horizon, right here in Portland at the 4th Wall PDX, and he also puts on the Antichristmas Festival, happening later this year, which I am super stoked for. Michael and I met up to watch Altered States together, and got to chatting both before and after the film. Check it out. You know, Michael, that's an excellent idea. I'm probably going to join you because we're about to watch Altered States. And if you're watching Altered States, you should be in an altered state. That's very true. If you're going to watch Altered States, you should be in an altered state. When was the last time you saw this movie?
1: Um, It has been, I think, boy, uh, I'd say about two years. I watched it online with my uh, movie crew during the lockdown that's also uh, kind of like the fest and uh, comedy crew that I roll with is like me and Avalon, Emma Jonas, uh, Dave Lowry, Sean O'Neill, might have been one or two others. And uh, we were just kind of trying to find the outlier of film. Yeah, you know, Just digging into things that a lot of us hadn't seen, and we uh, threw it on, and we quickly determined it was not really a, a movie about regression or r- religious iconography, but uh, really a movie about the creation, making, and eating of sandwiches. And and, and when we watch it, I'll point it out, and I, I think I'm going to count them. Okay. And, and when we
0: get back into the actual podcast, I'm going to give a sandwich count. Nice. Well, I look forward to that count. It, it's a screenplay by Patty Chayefsky, who did another great piece called The Network. Oh, um, or just Network, rather. That movie was another one that kind of shaped my understanding of society. Altered States being another for sure. Yeah, you know, I had uh, the
1: first time I saw Altered States, I think I was probably 14 or so. I, I, I was on this William Hurt kick. Sure. Uh, And it wasn't the first, I think I started with uh, Kiss of the Spider Woman and kind of backtracked, because that was one of the first metaphor kind of films, like Gift of the Magi, where where you've got one person who's lived a a frivolous life, but is full of of love and whimsy, and and another who's uh, dedicated his life to others so so much he's never found time for himself or find love or or experience emotional satisfaction they both teach each other how to do so before basically they both die but it had
0: such an impact i had to start chasing down all the uh william hurt stuff nice the first time that i saw it was a weekend session at a drug rehab outpatient that i was at when i was 17 so they, they were trying to show you that you you could hallucinate without the hallucinogens. Dude, we had the cool teacher doing the weekend stuff, and we would watch a movie and talk about it. And typically, that movie had some sort of moral value to it. And the th- this one was just like a toss up. I don't think that the dude screened it first. I think he just kind of put it on, and. From that point on, I was hell bent on getting my hands on as many hallucinogens as possible. <laughs> so I think it had the, the opposite effect. So for me, it has this warm thing like, you know, when you're first discovering things in life, you know, like, I mean, I don't know if you remember the first time that like you smoked weed or the first beer you had or like, you know, the first. Time I you remember took the
1: mushrooms. first time I took every single drug I've taken. I, I can like recount almost every moment. Today.
0: You in the GHB?
1: Uh, you know, I know, but um, the heroin, yes. The,
0: yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, which I smoked, not knowing what I was smoking. Mm. Um, well, I would say hallucinogens are my favorite insofar as that they kind of fuck with the frequency of reality. And we see that. I've never done it in conjunction with a float tank, but I certainly would. And I've never done anything stronger than LSD. Well, I, I've done Masculine, but like I've never done... An ayahuasca ceremony or peyote or anything that is typically considered like a higher level hallucinogen or DMT even because I want that Joe Rogan experience, you know, when the when we check out the pineal gland supposed to dose you super hard so that you don't realize that you're dying.
1: Yeah, I mean, I worry about anything that would put me in any similar place as Joe Rogan because, you know, maybe you don't come back. That might explain why his head's so wide now.
0: It is just filling up with information. (laughs)
1: It's just one giant
0: third eye, like a fucking cancer in his brain. (laughs) It might be that. That might explain a lot of his content recently. Hallucinogens are not. I think that the psychological aspect of this movie is very intriguing and I want to do isolation tank experiments with my own psyche, independent and combined with hallucinogens. Hopefully I don't end up like a cro Magnum man, but yeah, hey, anything can happen, especially when watching Altered States. So, uh, shall we? Yeah, let's get altered. Nice.
2: In the basement of one of the country's leading medical schools, Dr. Edward Jessup, candidate for a Nobel Prize, is conducting the most dangerous experiment in the history of science. And the subject of the experiment is himself. Ask him what kind of an experience I can expect.
0: The noise is deafening!
1: It's blacked out. What happens during these blackout periods is you get the feeling of phenomenal acceleration, like you're being shot out over millions, billions
2: of years. Time simply obliterates. You guys are shooting up with an untested drug that stacks up in the brain and works in the nucleus of the cell, and you don't call that dangerous. Ah! Now, I'm asking you to put the experiment off until we understand a little more in order to minimize the no risk. Way. I'm really frightened. We could be screwing around with this whole genetic structure. Now, how do we stop this?
1: We've got millions of years stored away in that computer bank we call our minds. We have got trillions of dormant genes in us. Our whole
2: evolutionary past. Perhaps I've tapped into that. He may be on to something that is beyond our own comprehension. Now, because I believe him, I want this thing stopped. <laughs>
3: the hell was that? You okay?
2: If you love me, if you love me, Eddie, get fired! Altered states.
0: I I absolutely hate the end of this movie.
1: I am on board with you. I think um, one tonally it doesn't really match the rest of the film, but more than that, I don't know what it's even trying to say. And it's like he out he like out primals his primal state to come out of the primal state. I, I'm not even sure what that break is and where it leaves
0: us. I think it's Does it happen again the next night? Love or, like, the will triumphs all. or It's like a shoehorned-in metaphor for, like, the tri- a triumph of the will. Not in, like, a Nazi sense, but, like, in, like, i <laughs>
1: <laughs>
3: oh,
1: okay. I'm glad you clarified.
0: Yeah, well, uh, I mean, this did have a lot of Nazi imagery in it. No, but uh, but also, whenever I see that ending scene, I see the South Park episode where Cartman is going through the hallway and does the whole, like, knocking against and, like, turning into different versions of the primordial self. It's
1: funny, because who I see, uh, and I'm sure this is what that's referencing, but uh, every time he goes into that, like, full body horror mode, I picture the younger brother in Basket Case, the one that comes out and just oh, like, oh, oh. <laughs> and destroys rooms and murders people.
0: There's there's definitely some Goonies vibes in there as well. <laughs> chunk, chunk, <laughs> little Baby Ruth in there.
1: Oh, uh, that's fun. Yeah, I think he painted himself into a corner. I'm not. Uh, ultimately, I'm not sure what the movie was aiming to say what the characters I mean it is based on a novel but it seems that he denies love so often and and keeps trying to turn away from it to lean into being a scientist and discovering
0: things and then it ends with him on that note of I love you so well I think he's he's trying to find this he's like a truth seeker I think that's like the the realization that Emily has there like she's you know, finally, like, oh well, he he doesn't love me. He's never loved me. He's incapable of love. And I think that him like going toward that ultimate void, because there's a lot of like ego death uh, story arcing going on there for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, you see that when he's having when he's doing the actual experiment experience of the ceremony in the cave. You know, that whole scene of when they turn to ash and then turn to dust. That, I think, is part of the ego death that the shaman describes, where, like, you step into the void of nothingness that is in between, like, the crack in between reality. And for someone like Jessup, who is such a scientifically minded person who eschews all of the emotional things in search of that ultimate primordial truth, Like, I think that what he realizes, because he says, like, I've been to the beginning of consciousness, if you will. And there is, before that, is nothingness. So, I don't want to just exist in nothingness. I want to feel that I love you and that I want to experience that in and of itself. But the whole hallway scene is just a literal example of that theory or that concept and it but it just feels so shoehorned in and the way that it just caps the movie out of nowhere
1: well you did. how do you get i mean how do you represent it in a manner that feels like you've got a, a triumphant finish i mean wh- where do you go with where something go? that should be a conversation really it may have came about after bad test scoring with audiences yeah, that's what. I would be they curious. They changed up see. the ending of The Exorcist three over, mm. and that's why you get that bizarre him on the wall, the floor ripping open, and all that. The original uh, film was him just walking in and shooting the dude, <laughs> yeah, and just like boom, that's it. And it's a uh, it's kind of, yeah, it's the way the book re- uh, reads, if I remember correctly.
0: Legion. I gotta look into the differences between the novelization of altered states and the film version because. Well, I guess it was, it was more of a, a screenplay.
1: So it never was a book. I thought, uh, looking
0: it up earlier, I thought it said book, but I may have... Uh... So Chayefsky is a screenwriter who wrote the novel Altered States. Well,
1: no no one better to translate a novel to, uh, I mean, typically to uh, film
0: than the one guy who wrote the book. He yeah, said that's... he can make sure he's hitting the points he wants to. That's definitely true, so I guess within that respect, either he did cap it off the way that it was meant to be, or it was bastardized by Hollywood, which I would say is likely the case, because it was a profitable movie, it's not like it was a flop or anything, and it has a still, so I would say, a cult following and open to great reviews. I it's, mean it's probably
1: his, uh, like I think we were saying before uh, we watched it, 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 it's his most accessible film and probably his, his widest release, I would imagine. Yeah. You know, everything else is so artsy-fartsy and a little more, I mean, this really is. you about Russell. Is, yes. Yeah. Compared to, like, I don't know, what, what are his other big films, Gothic and... Um, mm-hmm you know Lara the White Worm uh is a shit ton of fun that's probably my favorite film of his and it it has maybe a little more budget but it, it, his this just like he always has great actors but it's usually before they're big were you saying this was uh William Hurt's first
0: film yeah Andrew Barrymore's. okay um, yeah, yeah, I got I him before he was big. Well, and I didn't even recognize that it was Drew Barrymore. I, I mean, she's uh,
1: straight, I, I didn't
0: until now, and I'm, like, rewinding in my head. Yeah. And I'm just like, fuck, I, that e, was. Yeah, even then, because she's more recognizable, I guess, in uh, E.T. I, I, you know, I, just,
1: I and the Fire kids Starter. in this
0: movie like William Hurt did. I didn't yeah. even notice. Right. Moral of the story, fuck those kids. Well, folks, we just finished watching Altered States. It was a visually very compelling movie.
1: Yeah, and, I I mean, I'm not sure that I would say it wasn't, um, like, you know, intellectually compelling uh,
0: for a period, for, like, the first two acts. It is an intellectual movie insofar as the the subject matter.
1: Yeah. uh, (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think any time you're watching, like, uh, Russell's films, there's always this balance between headiness and a little bit of um, pretentiousness, and, and it's a fine line, and I think this is the film of his that really stands a little more grounded. And Until that final, final act, although I wasn't really with the main character, I didn't like the way he treated the people around him and, and didn't care for, um, you know, his motivations... Uh, I I understood him and he seemed to make a lot of sense with the film is just, uh, and I get what you were saying with, you know, what it's supposed to represent for him. It just doesn't like, it doesn't feel profound uh, the way it it lands on
0: film. No. and, And we were talking about this earlier about hallucinogens and having epiphanies. And it's just like the epiphanies that he does have, they seem very directed and in so far as that if you're looking for something, you're going to find it. And I feel like that's where he was going with it.
1: Well, that's uh, i mean, uh, that's how I felt about all the Catholic imagery. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's like, uh, I I feel like with hallucinogens, my, you know, when I take them and use them, I'm very susceptible to being affected by anything externally that's going on. It, you know, it's not just a hallucination that's based on something I'm looking at, but the music, the temperature, the lighting, you know, everything
0: comes into play. And uh, so it's like the, the culmination of the stimuli that you're experiencing.
1: Yeah. And that there is a sequence in the movie, actually, that, um, that, uh, had a, kind of similar experience with which leads up to when um, the Hill Street Blues cop guy like opens up the tank and he's bleeding out of the mouth. Yeah. Uh, that, that moment where he's like sliding away where he's just describing how he's seeing it and then he's uh, becoming one of them. One time me and my uh, friends uh, were getting together to all take a bunch of acid. We had gone and uh, picked up some stuff that just rolled into town. It's supposed to be really strong. And we're all getting ready to take it, and uh, we're all eating, and I reach into my pocket to grab it where I had dropped it when we had bought it earlier, and I pull out, you know, a, what feels like a hit of acid, and it turns out it is a hit of acid of a different kind that I had been selling like a year earlier, and one had just gotten loose in this uh, trench coat pocket. I was like, oh, it's uh, it's a hit of that psycho candy. I'm taking this. This was my favorite. And it, it was. Best fucking shit in the world. Lots of patterns, lots of colors. The thing was, it wasn't super strong. You had to take four or five hits to really get there. Mm. I I guess it was like a 100-mic thing. And uh, so I eat that, and everybody else eats the other stuff. And as the night goes on, me and Dante kind of split off on our own. And I didn't realize how fucked up he was. But uh, eventually, he just tells me, dude, I'm trying so hard. And I'm like, really? I'm not? You know, fuck it. I ate the other hit. So mm. now I've taken two different kinds of ass. Yes. And I had one of the just balls-to-the-wall hardest trips of my life. Yeah. And we end up down in front of this place called Liquor Outlet, and my buddy uh, Brent sees me. He's over in his car, and he's like, hey, uh, Scooter, because that's what everybody called me back then, uh, c- come over here. Are you okay? Yeah, dude, I'm just frying real hard. I can't do it with that crowd because, uh, you know, it was like a party had been crashed. And everybody always hung out in front of this liquor place. And like 30, 40 high school kids out there. And it's too much for me. He's like, uh, well, hop in into the car. We're just listening to music and smoking one, mellow out. I'm like, cool. All right, I'll do that. And I hop in. And I tell him about how much drugs I'm on. And he's like, oh, well, here, let me put on some Pink Floyd. Huh. And he throws on, I think it's maybe animals. It's yep. one with the mini furry animals. Yeah, that's you know, right. Blah, 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 blah. with a pick. And uh, he's like, all right, close your eyes and listen to this. And he turns it up. And he just starts walking me through, you're in the forest. And you're walking. And he just like starts just kind of giving me. a scene kind of Yeah. And I, I just lose the narration. Because now I'm in the woods and I'm moving along and I feel like I'm not alone. And I look off to the left and I can see out along the trees, which are starting to whip by pretty quick because now I'm starting to run because I can feel like, like I'm being followed. I can see these green kind of grassy people. Yeah, I look over to my right, and there's some of them trailing me, almost, like, mirroring me off in the trees. But there's, a, like, a line, of them going both ways. So now I'm running as fast as I can, and they're just keeping pace with me. And now I'm riding a horse, and they're keeping pace with me, and I'm trying to fucking ride it as fast as I can. It's frothing at the mouth, and we're going, and we're going, and suddenly Brent's just shaking me. He's like, dude, dude, are you okay? I'm like, what, what, what? he's like, I was losing you there for a minute. And I was like, yeah, yeah, I'm okay, thanks. And then I was just back in front
0: of Liquor Outlet. It is amazing how you can get lost in certain worlds or thoughts. It's also amazing to me how, at least with acid, and uh, uh, most people call them tracers, but I remember looking at my cat's ears and seeing all of the different states that they could be in forward, backward, and everywhere in between all at once. And also the different states of dilation of the eyes, which was very strange. It's about being able to quite literally live inside and outside of your present moment. And for me, that's the power and value of hallucinogens. I think that's where a lot of the epiphanies come from. I've had a lot of self-realizations, especially on LSD. And what I think it has to do with oftentimes is breaking down your perception of self and the way that you fit into the grander scheme of the collective consciousness. So the desire, like what Jessup has, to get down to that base perception of consciousness or reality, or even transcend that into another perception is certainly intriguing. I would like to pursue it. I would I, I want to do the isolation tank with hallucinogens combination now more than ever.
1: Well, I mean, uh, I would certainly like to uh, begin with just doing the isolation tank to see what sure. that experience is. Like. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Certainly, uh, yeah, I've often heard, you know, from the experts in the field, you shouldn't mix the two, which, of course, encourages me to, to, to maybe to mix three. You know? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I'm going to smoke weed, eat acid, and jump in there. I'd like to see if it did take me someplace, because I, as I was telling you earlier, I, I don't believe I've ever found myself in an ego death epiphany place. And and it could and just be the drugs that I've been taking. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like back, I don't take gr- like huge levels now, but in my youth, I was swinging for the fences. I mean, we, we there was a time I took so much liquid I lost, like, all sense of reality visually. Sure. It just, like, it was almost a sense like, world. Yeah. Yeah. The TV screen and then just swirled colors was all I saw for several hours.
0: Hmm. Yeah, and and so I've never really kicked it up a notch. I I would say that my biggest uh, and, you know, true ego death is something that I, I don't, I would say that I've not experienced. But the closest thing that I've come to it was definitely on mescaline. It was the most intense come up and one of the nicest letdowns. Mm. Well, I don't want to say letdown, but come Come down, down. (laughs) because it certainly wasn't a letdown. It also has to do with trusting the value or at least the efficacy of what it is that you're consuming, because it is largely unregulated, much like the substance that, Jessup is using in altered states because all acid at one point or another was government acid and or derived from I believe it was the Swedish who made it originally it was either the Swiss or the Swedish but under under the behest of the US government they were like hey uh, why don't you synthesize a fuck ton of this for us and they were like yeah okay and they did that Uh, so almost all acid at least pre 1970s Came from a government source. So, to some degree, there was like a vetting process as opposed to just like some dude who's synthesizing LSA, you know, in his friggin' basement.
1: Yeah, but I, I mean, also though, when you look at like government weed, most of that was terribly grown stuff of very low uh, quality. I don't know I if agriculture in their
0: repertoire. I mean, it's you know. yeah.
1: I, I just worry that that like when when you're looking at the government as being a, a defining barometer on anything, I, I think that you know they look for uniformity more than they would be like the the finest high or the uh, maybe you know the the most um, most revelatory high.
0: Yeah, no, I, I would say that isn't their motivating factor. I think that, you know, they would mess with dosage. If you look a lot of it look at a lot of the MK Ultra experiments mm-hmm. that have been either declassified or not that they've necessarily been declassified, but like leaked or just kind of otherwise been made available to the public. They use a lot of unwitting subjects. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that they were focused on potency. They they wanted it to work. For, sure. for various reasons, but they wanted it to be, like you said, as uniform as possible. And I think as strong as possible.
1: Yeah. like So getting back to to the experience of taking the two different acids. Sure. It, this is the 80s. And back then, if you needed acid, you could just drive down to Haight Street and literally walk around. And sooner or later, you find a hippie who will sell you some. They're looking for kids looking to buy. It. And uh, we picked up a bunch of it. And so we had it for a summer. And it, like we ate it a lot. And it was, like I said, you had to take a lot of the the high was so specifically fun and upbeat and colorful. I mean, there's, there's so many variations from one batch to another. And I'm not sure if that's, you know, in a recipe or if that's
0: something that comes about from from like additives, you know, like what it, what does it? I don't know enough about these synthesizing process to say one way or the other. Because I've had friends, like, because I've, I've
1: noticed batches of mushrooms affecting me differently. And there are definitely different strains that affect you
0: differently. Well, oh, yeah. Well, that can have to do everything from locale to soil to, you know, all sorts of things. So, it, and it's, I'm glad you bring up mushrooms because they don't take acid in this movie. It is a mushroom concoction tea, of which I'm very fond of. I do love taking mushroom tea as, and as opposed to any other form of ingesting mushrooms. Also, I, I don't know the direct science behind this, but to my understanding, your kidneys, they don't filter psilocybin back into the body, so it gets expelled with your urine. So if you ever want a super-duper extra trip, you drink, like, a gallon of water, and you pee all that out, and then you drink your mushroom tea... And then the first urination that you have is supposed to be sterile, hyper-concentrated psilocybin that you then re-consume. And it gives you, like, a fucking double dosage boost.
1: Well, I'd have (laughs) to be on a lot of mushrooms to want to drink my urine. to begin with.
0: Or just be Bear Grylls. Yeah. Just be Bear Grylls. I'd have to... uh, I couldn't be high enough to be Bear Grylls. Yeah, that's fair. (sighs) Yeah, you've got to be... Motherfucker. Hella high to do what he does. Well...
1: Post- you ever heard about that time that he he got caught faking uh, being on a deserted island, and it was the same beach they shot
0: scenes on Lost? Yeah. Ah, oh, fuck. Nice dirtbag. You know, he's no less Stroud. Let's let me put it that way. That's Survivor Man. Yeah, they, he's the reason Survivor Man quit. Really, he could. Les Stroud couldn't hang with the fame and power that is Bear Grylls. Yeah, basically, he was like, I can't compete with
1: people who fake it. Mm. he's making money i you know it costs me a certain amount of money to to do what i 'm doing. I can't, be, you know, be putting productions on that same uh, level and that's what they're asking me to do. Well, it's, He kind of walked away.
0: It, but he does I, I seem like too. he's gotten a little funky, too. The way that he did it, though, was pretty legit. I mean, kayaking out to the middle of nowhere, you know, with all the gear. Wait, are we talking setting, about Survivor Man? We're talking about Survivor Man. Well, no, he's yeah. the real deal. Yeah, he's the real deal. He is
1: everything Bear is not. He, he is, like, yeah. he, he's showing you ways, like... There's things I've watched on Survivor Man I'll never forget because I'm like, huh, that's something that that could help. First episode I ever see of fucking Bear Grylls, he's going up into the Lake Tahoe area, Sierra Nevada mountains, which is where I was living at the time I saw it. Mm. His first attempt to escape the mountains, which is just, you know, walk downhill, asshole. But uh, he tries to lasso a wild horse to ride out of the mountains. That's his first his first idea.
0: I mean, first thought, best thought, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm just going to jump this canyon. If I was in his situation, I would be out foraging for mushrooms. <laughs> <laughs> and finding love. And finding love. Oh, isn't that nice? Well, that's what this movie apparently is all about michael thanks for watching it with me man oh of course i think uh you've been trying to find a guest for this one for like a year now something like that (laughs) basically since the start of science factual i've been like does anybody want to watch alter states with me i think it's in like one of the first posts that i put in portland comics like yeah let's talk about that and star trek and and maybe something else
1: yeah i saw your list and this was actually the one that stood out to me so uh I think it was only three sandwiches, but it was at least three sandwich periods. Yes. But they did bring back a
0: a, a stealth sandwich in the back at at the end. That's true. Yeah, yeah, there was was a half-eaten sandwich on the floor definitely was a a good dovetail to the whole sandwich saga. Yeah, I, I guess we had been watching the director's
1: bread cut. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so, <laughs> so, I don't know I, I've been smoking weed the entire time to stay in mode with the uh, movie it, it was a lot of fun it is visually uh stunning at times that guy, uh, brand Farron, I think is yeah. one, as we uh, looked him up. Yeah. Uh, it, it dips into some 2001 era places Definitely. and it's nice because it, unlike 2001 where you have to wait the first two hours to get to the visuals, they are peppered nicely throughout. So, I mean, this is, I think a, a very solid film, for watching while being under the influence of psychedelics. Because I am a a movie tripper. Like, when I take my mushrooms or my acid, I I do like to watch movies. That's one of the things I jump into. And uh, you need a good balance. It can't be too talky. Uh, This gets into uh, imagery every few, every 10 minutes or so, you get some stuff that's worthwhile.
0: Yeah, oh yeah. It's definitely, it's got its good breaks with, different imagery sequences it's not as intense as something like event horizon which we did together at the dark arts festival that was super fun yeah that was great that's um, so much fun and it, but it's not as cheesy as you know other 80s movies and this was made in 1980 80s movies can be very cheesy but it was this was done well well I think there is a place right right around 80
1: where there is a lot of like the new cinema directors coming out of the 70s who had this very grounded real feeling were experimenting over with horror and science fiction in a, in a very serious way. These these weren't movies that were being made for it to be B films on the grindhouse uh, circuit or anything like that. They you know they were looking for a thoughtful audience. Mm-hmm. I mean, the same time this came out, I think is the same year, like a uh, brain scan came out and like uh, Cronenberg uh, had video drama, I think in 81 or 82. Uh, I mean, there is an area where like a lot of these films are not just like sensationalizing uh, ideas. They're really exploring them. And I think this is one of them. And, and you yeah. know, this guy is, I mean, Russell, he did the devils. And I mm-hmm. mean, that's a movie that's, just wrestling with, with with the catholic church throughout i mean i don't think he makes any film lightly no that's for certain yeah
0: this one included
1: yeah uh, i mean very, yeah it, even though this is like i said it, his most accessible film um i mean it, it's uh thought-provoking you know it's a, a occasionally transgressive it, it's funny it's it, William Hurt just seems so assured and you know, already. I, I mean, I I know he was a stage actor too, so he must have been doing that shit forever before he had come over here. And he steps. He steps right into the role yeah. for sure. And well, man, he
0: can wear a fucking wing collared shirt. Oh yeah, oh. yeah. The collars on his shirts. Yeah, and he could wear nothing at all. I think he. Was, <laughs> he often wears. Yeah, he at was all. very naked in this movie. Oh fuck, we see everything. Sure do. Hey, uh, so, Michael, tell me about the Ha Ha Harvest Festival that's coming up.
1: Yeah, I think this is going to be the third live Ha Ha Harvest comedy festival in uh, Portland. It is a a, um, kind of Portland comedy-centric festival that encompasses a, a number of different venues. It'll be running from November 25th through 27th. That's Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, and it's a mixture of stand-up comedy and a lot of the different variety shows that go on around here. I know uh, Kim Strong's Butter is going to be uh, going show. on at uh, Kelly's Olympian, I think, on mm-hmm. uh, Friday night. I know on Saturday, Emma Pace Jonas' um, Truth or uh, Dare is going to be at Kelly's Olympian. Yep. But before that, she's doing. She's going to co-host Forgotten Fantasies with me over at The Fourth Wall. Nice. And, in fact, on uh, Saturday at The Fourth Wall, we will be doing uh, programming from noon all the way through uh, 10 p.m., starting with three hours of Saturday morning cartoons with uh, stand-up comedy and live music. And, and- cereal. And yeah, that's right. Always a great $5 cereal Five-dollar uh, unlimited um,
0: bowls of uh, breakfast cereal. Can't beat that. Yeah, and they've, they've got like four or five different ones. It's it's a good deal. Goddamn. Science Factual is going to be up in the mix as well, so keep your peepers peeled on that announcement. Going to have Cody Webb on. We'll be either doing uh, Phantasm or Heavy Metal. I'm not sure yet.
1: I think, you know, Phantasm definitely feels like it falls more in the folk uh, definitely horror Definitely folk area. horror-ish, yeah. And I think it kind of definitely fits into the theme of the day, which is um, Slash of
0: Saturday. Uh, we are taking over nice. uh, over at the fourth wall. Well, Phantasm it is. Oh, boy, it's going to be fun. Sounds fantastic. <laughs> oh, fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> all right, well, all right. right. Thank you so much that. for having yeah. me on. Yeah, thanks, Michael. All right. Thanks again for the beans, Michael, and for counting sandwiches with me throughout the head trip that is Altered States. Seriously, I cannot stress this enough. If you have any affinity toward the psychedelic range of illicit drug use, please do yourself a favor and watch this film. Might want to watch it the first time without frying, though. The imagery is intense. There's been a lot of talk about various hallucinogens that Michael and I have had the pleasure of experiencing, not to mention the various drugs mentioned and used in Altered States, but What exactly is going on with psychedelics? Like, how do they work and stuff? You know? You know? It's a good thing that LSD is colorless and odorless, because it's time for this week's Water Cooler Facts. (sighs) Well, a true dive into just how things get so heady is like a total trip, man. So, I'll stick to the fundamentals. Also called psychedelics, hallucinogens alter a person's perception, mood, and a slew of other mental processes. Hallucinogen history goes back centuries as people worldwide have taken the drugs to induce altered states for religious and spiritual purposes. While LSD, lysergic acid diethylamide, mescaline, and other psychedelics were studied in the past, research largely came to a halt after recreational abuse of the drugs in the 1960s, with some work resuming in the 1990s. Many studies now rely on animal models such as mice, although there have been more recent forays into the realm of using psychedelics in conjunction with mental health regimens. One human study published in the journal Psychopharmacology revealed the active ingredient in hippie mushrooms called psilocybin elicited, quote, mystical experiences for participants that reportedly led to behavior changes lasting for weeks. However, nearly one third of the participants had a, quote, bad trip reporting that they found the drug experience frightening. Research has suggested hallucinogens primarily do their magic in the brain's cortex, where the drugs activate specific receptors called 5-HT2A receptors that are normally triggered by serotonin release. Quote, in order to function, the cortex is integrating different signals, for example, glutamate signals and serotonin signals. And what hallucinogens must be doing is that they are disrupting this process so that the sensory perception is altered by them said neuroscientist stuart Sealfen of mount sinai school of medicine in new york however not all compounds that activate these receptors lead to mind-bending trips scientists once thought of receptors in terms of locks and keys in which certain drugs fit into a specific receptor as a key fits into a lock that receptor would then turn on and signal to other molecules in the cell but that's not the case for hallucinogens Research by Seelfan and his colleagues published in the journal Neuron revealed the serotonin 2A receptor has more than one on position. When a non-hallucinogen activates the receptor, it causes one pattern of signaling of the cells in the brain that is not hallucinogenic. But when a hallucinogen turns on this receptor, the receptor we infer must go into a different position and that leads to a different pattern in responses in the cell and is what makes the hallucinogen have its unique effect. Brains are mysterious, whether on drugs or not. Silfen's and others' research has continued to reveal how brain receptors are involved in hallucinogenic effects. Study results are also providing insights into the nature of a mystical or hallucinogenic experience. And so while studies are shedding light into the brain on hallucinogens, many questions still remain. At the end of the day, hallucinogens should be used in a comfortable environment, whatever that means to you. I mean, I can take a significant amount of LSD in public, but that's because I have experience with it and take measures to ensure that I remain in some form of control. Also it typically helps to have what's called a trip sitter, someone who can be there for you in a supportive role both physically and emotionally, to at the very least make sure that you don't really attempt to fly or breathe underwater or wherever it is that your trip happens to take you. Also i consider avoiding mirrors or public places if you take a significant dose. And remember, you can always take more, but you can't untake most drugs. But most of all, have fun, and try to discover something about yourself in the process. I'd like to thank my sources for this week's episode, including imdb.com, medium.com, Good Old livescience.com, Den of denofgeek, and of course, wikipedia.com, because if it's on Wikipedia... Someone submitted the article during the throes of a freakout. Man. Man, man, man. For Season 2 of Science Factual, we will have a new monthly format in place starting in 2023, which looks like this. For Week 1, we'll have a guest comedian like Thomas Lundy, who will be dropping in to discuss Serial Experiments Lane, which I'm very much looking forward to, on January 3rd. For Week 2, we have a Shady Pines Radio DJ guest. Like Tyus McCowan from Euphonia, Euphonia. where we'll be finally covering the rest of the Alien franchise on January 10th. For week three, we'll have another guest comedian, like friend of the show and host of obsessive comic disorder Gene DeWeber, where we'll be doing a crossover episode covering the Doomsday Clock series as a follow-up to episode 17 I did on Watchmen with Jake Silberman. That comes out January 17th. Then we'll wrap up each month in week four with a decade dive. Starting in 2023, I'll be covering a decade per month with a special guest starting on January 24th. That schedule will look like the 19th century through the turn of the 1920s in January, the span of the 1920s in February, the 1930s in March, etc., etc., for the remainder of 2022, comedians will be filling up the guest slots, including next week's guest, the very funny Mary Grawl. We're going to be taking a big old dive into the Fringe television series, which is basically if J.J. Abrams remade X-Files and had unfettered access to all of the lens flares. That episode airs November 22nd from 8 to 9 a.m. only on Shady Pines Radio Make sure to download the very free Shady Pines Radio app for Android and iOS or visit us online at shadypinesradio.com for 24-7 access to amazing content from some of the coolest cats I know. Speaking of X-Files, that episode will be coming later this year because I definitely need to do my homework on that series. Too many nerds last season were messaging me about facts that I either missed, glossed over, or didn't emphasize enough. So in response to those hyper nerds, I say this. I'll do my best, all right? Keep your ears peeled as well for Chapter 3 of The Book Report with Noah Linsk, where we take a look at Strangers in a Strange Land by Robert A. Heinlein, and if you don't already grok what I'm saying, you will fully grok after groking that episode, which will be dropping November 21st. Before we come down off of this episode, how's about a clip of author Ken Kesey talking about his experiences with various hallucinogens, as well as his observations, both individual and historical, throughout the years? Keezy wrote One Who Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, among other titles, and he's a fascinating man who had a front row seat to some of the most formative moments in counterculture history. So in the words of Timothy Leary, turn on, tune in, and drop out.
2: The acid test was breaking out into an area in which it had no specific goals. It was just discovering what there was out there if you just continued to move away from the norm. And but when we got to the end of it, we really had a sense of what the acid test meant to a lot of people. It was a test and there were people that passed and there were people that didn't pass. When we did the show up in Portland to give you an example of somebody who passed some businessman just walking around the street came in we charged a buck for a buck you got to see uh, us make all our noise and the dead make all their noise and and anything else that happened this guy was in a suit and uh, had an umbrella and he he got the customary cup of uh, stuff and about midnight you could see him really get ripped somebody you know had probably never been anything but drunk on beer and but he looked around and saw all these strange people and he looked down and there was a, the spotlight was showing down on him he saw a shadow down there and he stand up straight put that umbrella over his shoulder and he says the king walks <laughs> and begins to. said the king turns around and <laughs> now the king will dance they weren't just playing what was on the music sheets. They were playing what was in the air. When the dead are at their best, the vibrations that are stirred up by the audience is the music that they play. And consequently, when we'd go to L.A., you'd get one kind of thing. When you'd go to Portland, Oregon, you'd get completely other kind of music. And that means that the band has to be supple enough to really uh, read the notes written on the wall and that, and that they're changing all the time um, I don't know of any other rock band that could have done it usually when it, when it sort of started when we went to see the Beatles they went up to see the Beatles with us in the, in the bus and we saw, I saw power like I'd never seen it i have never imagined it before the um, when one of the Beatles, when George would turn his head like this, you'd hear this screaming wave, follow it, follow his head like this. And what the Beatles were saying was, come closer, come closer. Uh, Love me do. And the people were pressing closer and closer, but they didn't know how to sing that moment. And the moment needed to say, don't come closer, stay back, stay back, stay back. Because there's a moment when you see something like that there's a crack in your mind and you know it's a trick but you can't figure it out and that crack lets in all the light Uh it opens up all the possibilities when that little split-second thing happens when the dead are playing and everybody in the audience goes wow did you see that that is the that's the moment and kids will watch five hours of mediocre music to have that one click happen because that is puts them in touch with the invisible there was a time when we avoided fame because fame was almost the kiss of death uh, fame meant tom jones and john denver but uh, cream rises and people can recognize it and as the dead, the longer they've played, they haven't needed anybody to hype them. In fact, if anything, they've gone the reverse to uh, um, let people think, oh, there's nothing happening here because everybody knew from the very beginning that this was right. And it was going to continue uh, just the same way that uh, those flowers bloom, that it's genetically uh, purposeful. It knows what it's doing, and it will grow to its proper height, and uh, it will bear a flower. And all we have to do is keep people from tramping around in the flower garden. Yeah. When you hear ripples, uh, you know it's dealing with something beyond the veil. It doesn't say so, but the thing where there is no pebble tossed and the ripples in the water, everybody gets this chill up and by that. It's just the same thing as you when you read, uh, Shakespeare or Sappho or, uh, or the Bible. That, that the poetry is there. Um, these guys have known it a long time and they have just been the custodians of it and, uh, it's it's a great honor and a lot of fun to be ringside Same. with stuff like this it really is you'll uh i think that in in 20 years whoever is still alive will will still be working at what they're doing like they, there's no place else to go it's like me you know i buried my kid right out there on the place i can't get off this land you know, they would take it would take tanks to move me off this land. It it uh, the dead aren't gonna get up off that. Um, they're gonna defend it to the end of their life. Uh, they're warriors.
1: Hey folks, this is Michael Phelps, host of Father's Favorites and the Comedy Open Mic at my father's place, conveniently located at 523 Southeast Grand Avenue in Portland, Oregon. Mic signups are Fridays at 8 30 p.m. Come on by for some awesome breakfast food, great drinks, and the best comedians Portland and the Pacific Northwest has to offer. In the meantime, make sure you follow Science Factual on the socials. That's at Science Factual Pod, as well as Shady Pines Radio for amazing content 24 hours a day, 8 days a week. Download the app today wherever you procure your apps.
3: You're listening to ShadyPinesRadio.com Here's the lineup for Tuesday Starting at 8am Science Factual with Reese Hendrick At 9am Emotional Weather Report with Jamie Stewart Beat Salad with Mason O'Brien At 11am At noon The Blue Hour with Blue Corvidae. Northwest Comedy Hour With Emily June at 1pm At 2pm The Prague Hour with Reagan Lindy your own private pdx with dj squiffy at 3 p.m at 4 p.m cosmic taco beach shack with big papa warrior no dancing please with l ron hubbard at 5 p.m at 6 p.m anything new with shorty l toasty tunes with alex toast at 7 p.m at 8 p.m radio seance with your psychic friends at 9 p.m fresh unoriginal with dj Wineglass. Turntable Talk with Chili and Bass at 10 p.m. and at 11 p.m. Taking Drugs to Play Music to Take Drugs to with Shampoo Douglas. No matter the day or time, you've picked the right time to listen in. Thanks for listening and tell others.